So this past week, I was in Florida visiting my mother and her partner, who every year, past couple years, have escaped the northeastern winter and gone down to the Naples area for about six weeks. On Thursday, we went shelling in, uh, on a beach on this kind of nature preserve island. And as we were walking along picking up shells, my mother said something sort of off the cuff, just very casually, that stopped me in my tracks, just really profound. I was looking for conch shells, the kind that I just uh, talked about with the children, with their rich colors of browns and oranges and golds, you know, the kind of intact shells you might find in one of those shell stores, the real diamonds in the rough, you know, the standout shells. That's what I was looking for. My mother, on the other hand, was focused on something different. She was looking at those tiny little nondescript shells, such as you see uh, here, those tiny little things that, that are basically all over Florida. I mean, there are trillions and trillions of these. Florida might be made of these shells, for all I know. And she was looking for a very particular kind of these shells. She was looking for those that had little holes in the shell so that she and uh, her granddaughter, my niece, who was also there, could turn them into necklaces or into a bracelet, you know, as people do. And as she showed me, you know, some of these shells that she'd found, I said, Mom, how in the world did you find those shells with the holes in them amidst the gazillions of other shells on the beach? And she said, oh, it's easy. As soon as you start looking for them, they just appear everywhere. Isn't that interesting that what we look for just appears right in front of us? So she went on just collecting shells, and I just had to like take a breath and like take that in. I was like, wow, that is like really true. It's true from everything, like mundane things like cars to everyday miracles that we might experience. Remember that time you bought your last car, whether it was a new car or a used car, and suddenly after you bought that car, you saw that model car everywhere on the road, right? It seemed like it was every other car you passed or every other car in the parking lot. Like suddenly there was the model car that you just purchased. Well, it's not like they just appeared, but your vision had changed. You were now tuned into those cars and they just appeared everywhere. Or remember that time when you woke up and you were determined to go through the day and find miracles everywhere and you found 50 before you even got to the kitchen for breakfast. Jesus said, seek and you will find. Seek and you will find, which is another way of saying you will find that which you are seeking. What you are seeking, you will find everywhere. Physicists are actually coming to the same recognition and conclusion. Now, this isn't something I completely understand because I'm not a physicist, but I'm told that physicists are now concluding that reality depends on an observer to be there to make it happen, to manifest what is. I don't fully get that, but I think it's in the same ballpark, the same column of this deep teaching of that which we're looking for manifests and appears. The same thing can be true of Scripture. We can look at the Bible 
as a book about sin and about wrath and yeah, there's enough in the Bible. If we're looking for that, we'll find it. Or we can look at the Bible as a book of holy wonders, a book that definitely has some raw edges and maybe some things we want to interrogate and contextualize, but on the whole is this beautiful testimony of God's love and grace moving through human history. If that's what we're looking for in Scripture, we will find that everywhere. Many of us maybe grew up with and around a Christian theology that centered sin and wrath and decentered God's love and grace and forgiveness, or at least made God's love and forgiveness contingent upon a proper understanding of sin and wrath. We were told, perhaps, that due to the fall, that original sin from Adam and Eve, that sin was passed down through all humanity as the original sexually transmitted disease. You know, we're all infected, we all got it. And because of that, God is angry not just with Adam and Eve, but God is angry with us. We might have also been told that this payload of sin creates a separation between humanity and between God, that God is holy and can have no fellowship with sin and therefore no fellowship with human beings. And because God is just, this sin had to be punished. It had to be dealt with. But because God is merciful, God sent Jesus to take the punishment that we deserve, to die on the cross in our place. This might, is this a familiar message? Have any of you encountered this Christian message before or this diagram before? This is something that I grew up with that you might tell I can get a little worked up about it because I think it really needs to be deconstructed because this theology, this understanding is a theology of abuse. And a theology that centers on abuse and violence is an abusive theology. Now, more than that, Jesus never anywhere in the Gospels do we find Jesus defining and framing his death as taking the punishment that we deserve. You won't find that anywhere in Scripture. You also won't find Jesus saying, well, you know, sin separates us from God in order for us to close this gap. You know, you have to say a certain prayer and cross this bridge or the cross. Like, that's just not where we find Jesus, uh, where we find him rooted in his theology about his own life and his own death. There is a moment when somebody comes to Jesus and says, how do I inherit eternal life? Directly ask Jesus. And we would think, given what we hear sometimes in the church, that Jesus would then say, well, you've got to say the right prayer. You've got to say the salvation prayer and uh, to avoid going to hell and to go to heaven and so forth. But Jesus doesn't do anything like that. He doesn't point to himself at all. He simply says, you should love Love, love, love God, love your neighbor, love yourself. Do this, Jesus says, and you will live. Now, for most of Christian history, the main sin, the the dominant sin that we might have been told about or talked about, or I've even preached this myself, that the primary sin is the sin of pride ego, arrogance, thinking too much of oneself. And that idea has basically gone unchecked, that pride is the main sin that we all have to be watching out for. And that went unchecked for like 2,000 years. It wasn't until recent decades 
that feminist criticism came along and said, well, maybe not so fast. Maybe this pride thing is more of a guy thing. And those of us who identify as women, those of us who have experienced marginalization, the main sin isn't pride thinking too much of ourselves. Our problem is thinking too little of ourselves. Not pride, but in the words of one theologian, the sin of hiding. By hiding, people can suppress or sacrifice their identity, sometimes for personal safety, but often to the degree of just thinking of ourselves as less than or worthless. And therefore, for many people, pride is not something to avoid. Pride is something to lean into. Pride is something to explore, which of course is why the movement for gay liberation took pride back as a positive affirmation, self-love, despite all of the voices that raged and still rage against the LGBTQ community. You may have noticed that it's kind of rough out there right now for our queer siblings, particularly trans folk. Now that Roe v. Wade has been overturned and now that uh, gay marriage has protections from Congress, it seems that some have decided to make the trans community the new scare tactic, the new scapegoat, the new threat to children and to society at large, which is tragic, not only because there's so many actual threats we should be focusing on together rather than stigmatizing a group already at high risk for self-harm, but it's also deeply ironic, especially on a day like this, because many of the folk who are verbally transphobic also identify as Christians, and therefore they might also be focused on the story of today, which is one of the most trans-centric stories in Scripture, the story of the transfiguration of Jesus, the day Jesus came out to two of his closest and most trusted friends. Now, when I describe this as the transfiguration of Jesus, am I suggesting that Jesus himself was trans in the way that we understand trans today? Well, I don't know about that, but he does transform. He does reveal himself, his true self, you might say his hidden self, to a few trusted friends and in dazzling new attire, no less right? For the first time, Jesus revealed a glimpse of the divine glory that was perhaps hidden inside of him. And for the first time, Peter, James, and John, they see Jesus as he truly is. And after seeing him in that moment, they cannot unsee it any longer. As is often the case, the disciples are scared. They're confused. They, they don't know how to react. And beautifully, in the midst of their confusion and their fear, they hear this divine voice affirm, this is my child. This is the beloved. Listen to him. Now, where have we heard that before? This is my child, the beloved. Oh, right. That was the same words that came to Jesus 
at the baptism. Same words that are repeated in baptisms since then. Thank God. Many trans people hear God's affirmation over all the other voices of fear and confusion in our time. Thank God these beloved children can recall this most basic affirmation of their identity. You are beloved. Don't listen to prejudice. Don't listen to the fear. Listen to Jesus. Jesus and his teaching about loving God, loving neighbor, love yourself. Take pride in who you are. Lent begins on Wednesday. We will gather right here in the sanctuary at 7 p.m. We'll receive ashes on our forehead as a way to remind us of our mortality, that time is short. We don't have a long time in this life to continue to practice love of God, self, and neighbor. It's a time of self-examination. It's a, a period, a 40-day period of looking closely at ourselves. Some folks use this as a time of self-denial and self-deprivation, which it, it's fine if that's where you want to go with it. But for God's sake, literally for God's sake, don't use these upcoming 40 days as an opportunity to beat up on yourself. Let's fast, but let's fast from self-disapproval as well as from pride. Let's fast from insecurity as well as from egoism. Let's fast from self-hatred and self-abuse and feast on self-love, on God's love for us. Let's fast from abusive theologies. And remember, divine love hiding in plain sight everywhere when we have eyes to look and see. Amen. Ashe. Namaste.